Coming up on Philosophy Talk, pantheism, seeing the divine in nature. To me, nature is, the, you know, I don't know, spiders and bugs and then big fish eating little fish and then plants eating uh, plants and animals eating. Uh, it's like an enormous restaurant. In the fury of the moment, I can see the master's hand. In every leaf that trembles, in every grain of sand. The divine and the natural. The divine in the natural. What does it mean to worship nature? How can we make sense of pantheism in a scientific age? Is pantheism just an outmoded idea of the romantic poets? Is there a connection between pantheism and the modern ecological movement? Our guest is Philip Clayton from the Claremont School of Theology. Pantheism, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Our conversation started down the road at Stanford University, where both Ken and I teach philosophy. And today we're going to talk about pantheism. Pantheism, the view that God is identical with nature, and therefore nature is to be worshipped. Well, that's close, John, but let's be more precise. Pan means all, and theism is belief in God. So strictly speaking, pantheism is the belief that God is everything, and everything is God. Pantheists believe, in effect, that God is identical with the universe, with everything. Well, is that really all that different from Christianity or Judaism? I mean, in catechism class, I learned that God was imminent in the sense that he pervades the entire universe. Well, there's a, there are two really big differences. Pantheists deny, first of all, that God is a person in the way that Jesus Christ and God and the Holy Ghost are three persons, one substance. And they deny that God is transcendent. Transcendence. That's the view that God is something above and beyond the world that he transcends the universe, which after all, he is uh, allegedly created. He's an entity outside of the world, even if he also manages somehow to be imminent or fully present in it. Yeah, right. Pantheists deny that idea that God is transcendent. That's what they mean by their slogan, God is everything and everything is God. And pantheists reject, this is the second thing you mentioned, reject the idea that God is a person. That is, a being with beliefs, desires, intentions, and agency, the things that you think might make him lovable. And that idea that God is a person, that's pretty central to most monotheism. Yeah, that's right. And pantheists see God completely differently from that. For them, God isn't a person at all. That means he doesn't have will or intellect. There's no purpose. There's no plan of action that he has. None of that stuff. What is God? He's sort of, well, the unity that pervades and draws together into one big whole, all of existence. Uh, now pantheism is starting to sound remarkably like atheism. Uh, how so? Why do you say that? Well, atheism is the rejection of theism. And if we've rejected the personal God that transcends the universe, haven't we rejected theism? I don't really see how to make sense of the claim that God is everything and everything is God. I mean, by God, pantheists seem to mean something other than the personal being that exists above and beyond the world. To put it another way, what does the word God mean to the pantheist? If God just means everything that exists, then saying that God is everything is just saying everything is everything. 
That, that's not a very substantial body of belief. Well, you know, actually you're making a criticism of pantheism that is often made. Uh, uh, Schopenhauer put it nicely. He said, to call the world God is not to explain the world. It is only to enrich our language with a superfluous synonym for the word world. So Schopenhauer agrees with you. Well, exactly. Why, why talk of God at all if it's just another way to refer to the world or the universe? I think the pantheists should have the courage of their convictions and just call themselves atheists. Well, John, I, but I don't, I don't want to follow you there because I think you and Schopenhauer with you just have, they have too narrow a notion of God. Your notion of God is much too limited. God doesn't have to be a transcendent person to be God. And moreover, I think you can still worship this non-transcendent, non-personal God, even if he's not personal and transcendent. Well, okay, maybe so, but it seems like what you're leaving us, or what the Pantheon is leaving us, is pretty thin gruel to serve as any kind of religion. I mean, maybe that's why there aren't any Pantheist churches. I mean, there aren't, are there? And, and no universally agreed upon Pantheist rituals or practices either. Pantheism just sounds like nature-loving atheism. Atheism with an attitude disguised as religion. Well, you know, many pantheists do actually love nature. Some maybe even worship nature. The romantic poets Wordsworth and Whitman were self-described uh, pantheists. They definitely love nature. But, you know, there are other pantheists who aren't so fond of nature. Spinoza, Lao Tzu, maybe even Hegel and Plotinus. That's a little dicier. They didn't uh, regard nature as any particular object of worship. So it's a complicated view. Well, this whole idea of loving nature raises another question. Can pantheism survive what we know about about the universe. Namely, it's just mostly nothing interspersed now and then with some big flaming stuff and this little corner of things where we somehow managed to survive. Are there any modern-day pantheism? And, and how do they really distinguish themselves from theism without collapsing into atheism? Lots of questions for us to discuss. And we need to get started uh, answering them. And to help us do that, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, to find modern-day pantheists. She files this report. Do you believe in God? No, I don't believe in God. What is God? Well, I don't believe in God, so God is nothing to me. But for other people, I think... God is love and hope. God is a For many people, God is someone, a single creator. But what about pantheists? My idea of pantheism is that everything is part of a divinely co-creative whole. That's Rabbit, an eclectic pagan. She co-owns the Sacred Well, a magical shop in Oakland, California. Rabbit leads workshops that blend various religious ideas and practices. Pantheism and nature play prominent roles. Everything contains an indwelling divine nature. Each of us is doing our part, even inanimate objects, such as stones, you know, trees, um, stars, stardust, space garbage. <laughs> They're all part of this evolving whole. At the Sacred Well, about a dozen women huddle around the table. In the center, baskets of rose quartz to spread love, and rocks from Madagascar build as watery, floaty heart elevators. The air is thick with scented candles and incense. Pretty much anyone here who wasn't raised, you know, by parents who are invested in eclectic paganism and quantum physics has been taught that God lives outside of you and you have to bring God in, and that the devil lives outside of you and that the devil can get in. The way of the rabbit witchcraft says, you are already all of the good and evil of the entire universe, vast 
and circulating with potential. As an eclectic pagan, Rabbit incorporates slices of Buddhism, Yoruba, and Celtic Reconstructionism into her belief system. When she practices, Rabbit says she feels like she's debating with nature, or rather, asking nature to help her achieve a specific goal. Maybe if I'm to take something natural and go and like some stones and go sprinkle them in the water as an offering, it's a way for me to say, like a stone dropped into the water, I want to be something solid and concrete in the fluidity of this change. Rabbit is also presiding high priestess of the Come As You Are Coven. Since she founded the group in 2005, it's swelled to about 500 members. Rabbit says the coven embraces a range of believers, but tends to emphasize nature and service to others. And they gather every full moon. In a given ritual, we might put all of our focus on, say, the wolves. We might align ourselves with the spirit of the willow tree, and we might tap into the wisdom that the willow can offer by exploring what kinds of medicines it's been used to make and how have the branches been used in different ceremonial practices. Back at the class, Rabbit assigns homework. Each woman will establish a daily practice, like lighting a candle with good intentions towards someone else or visiting an altar. The goal, according to Rabbit, is to get these new witches and pantheists feeling the divine all around them. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Thank you, Caitlin, for that interesting uh, report about witches over in Oakland. Now, we don't want to promote any misunderstanding here. It may be that most witches and warlocks are pantheists, but most pantheists are not witches or warlocks. Indeed, most of the pantheists I know uh, have PhDs and are found not in covens in Oakland, but in academic departments interspersed around the world. Most of them wouldn't know an eye of a newt from an eye of a hurricane. I'm John Perry, and with me is my fellow Stanford philosopher and non-warlock, Ken Taylor. And today we're talking about pantheism. We're joined now by Philip Clayton. He's dean of the Claremont School of Theology, he's provost of Claremont Lincoln University, and he's co-author of The Predicament of Belief, Science, Philosophy, and Faith. Philip, welcome back to Philosophy Talk. Hey, thanks for having me, Ken and John. Philip, uh, you're a dean, a provost, a professor. You've written a lot of books, well over a dozen, maybe two dozen. Sounds to me like you're a pan-academic. How amidst all this, and I know you've been interested in all facets of religion, but what led to a, a, a focus on pantheism? Well, uh, how do you manage to keep philosophy afloat at Stanford and run a national radio show at the same time? Actually, my in involvement with this Claremont Lincoln University is because I'm interested in seeing if you can get some dialogue going among the religions of the world about the very kind of philosophical issues that you guys have just raised in the teaser here. Okay, that, fair enough. Pantheists are an important part of, of, of the scene. But when Ken and I were discussing it, we seemed to be led to the conclusion, or at least I was led, to worrying about whether pantheists basically want to have their cake and eat it too. Isn't pantheism just kind of a disguised form of atheism? What's really interesting about the position is it opens up a dialogue in that space in between classical theism and the complete rejection of theism or uh, religion that you see, for example, in new atheists like Richard Dawkins. And the trouble is the whole debate has been so dominated by classical theists and by religious dogmas that philosophers have a hard time opening up this space 
to get the debate going. What's exciting about the term pantheism, it's an invitation into a philosophical debate we really need to have. So today. you're wait a minute. Okay. So John made an accusation against pantheism in the uh, opening that basically it's going to collapse into atheism, right? Because it, it's denying everything that's intrinsic to theism. You're saying, well, no, you can have a kind of theism that's not atheism, but not personal transcendence. I mean, is it really coherent? Is there really a coherent middle ground? And tell me why it's a coherent and why it's middle, a middle ground. Most definitely, there's a coherent middle ground. What has happened is we have allowed traditional uh, religious groups to define the term theism or God. And then a lot of us have to say, well, no, that's false. So we begin with an aggressive no. That anthropomorphic deity, the white guy with the beard in the sky, doesn't exist. So if that's sufficient to end the discussion and say atheism wins, then the, the debate's over and let's go home. But for a philosopher, that's only the starting point. Okay, if that was an inadequate notion of God, how might you think the divine? And it turns out when you look back at the history of philosophy, West and East, that most, I would almost say, all the interesting work has been done with a different notion of God or the divine. Well, I, I think that's a great project you've taken on. I mean, historically, if you go back to the early 20th century, you had William James and his great book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which really for a time uh, said to philosophers and psychologists, religion is, is, a, is a vast theater of different approaches to things. But then at least in the last half of the 20th century, philosophy of religion has pretty well been consumed with with questions that come out of not even the Judeo-Christian view, but really uh, pretty orthodox Christianity, the the problem of evil, the existence of an omnipotent, omniscient, and uh, and et cetera. So so you're you're kind of trying to open up the philosophy of religion in a way that James did. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. I mean, what's happened is we've allowed a very small number of orthodox Christian claims to suck up the attention of people who think about religion. There's, there's sort of two histories that we can think of. The one history is uh, God revealed himself in one religion, one prophet, and then there was a theological tradition that got it right, and now philosophers have to come along and analyze that. But that's not what actually happened in Western philosophy. There were pervasive religious questions raised by the Greeks. Uh, Plotinus synthesized Plato and Aristotle into a, a new monistic approach, which you've already mentioned, was pantheist. Neoplatonism continued as the dark underbelly to the church for centuries and centuries. The medieval mystics played continually with unity language that resonates with pantheists like myself. Guys like Cusa and Bruno and just before the modern era. And then we had this brilliant pantheist thinker, Baruch Spinoza, living in the 1600s and espousing a unity understanding, a metaphysic of great sophistication and also warm and inviting to science. So we're going to dig into this, Philip. There's a lot that you've uh, hinted at here. We're going to have to dig into this more deeply. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're talking about pantheism with Philip Clayton from the Claremont School of Theology. What, what's the religious impulse that would lead someone to believe in pantheism? What does adopting pantheism get you? What does it get you that some other belief system or no belief system at all might not get you? Pantheism, divinity, and the religious impulse when philosophy talk continues. I wish to be a big cactus with a pink flower on it And a flower would be its offering of love To the desert and the 
God and nature, nature and God. Could it all just be one big divine whole? We're talking about pantheism. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Philip Clayton from the Claremont School of Theology. So, Philip, you know, I understand. I mean, okay, so there's a debate that one could have about the metaphysical nature of divinity. I understand that philosophical debate. I'm not quite sure we've settled that. We've only touched the surface, and I want to talk about that a lot more. But first, I want to, but there is this other thing I'm puzzled a little bit about. I'm not sure how to think of pantheism as a religion. I mean, is there, in what sense, so I think religion is born of what I'd like to think of as the religious impulse, right? religious experience. What kind of religious impulse or experience would lead a person to believe in pantheism and a adopted as not a metaphysics of the world, but as a religion? Ken, that's a great question. And you already alluded to William James and his brilliant uh, survey of the mystical and religious people, uh, responses that people have had. Pantheism picks up on that sense, um, as the medieval mystic uh, said, and all shall be one, and all manner of things shall be one that there's some deeper unity that underlies all things. It, has a, it expresses also a sense of the sacredness of nature, like in the famous words of William Wordsworth in Tintern Abbey, that sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and but, the blue sky. And in the mind of man, there's something sacred about that. Let me, let me, let's pause a little bit, though, because the oneness. Okay, I get the idea of the oneness of the universe. It's one unified whole, except, you know, there's parts of the universe, the non-observable universe, that are so far separated from us as a consequence of the Big Bang that we can never know anything or anything about it. So in some sense, it's not really one, right? Because there are things that exist too far apart to influence one another because, you know, you can't influence anything beyond the speed of light. That's that's one thing. But, okay, but that just seems the oneness of the universe, the unity of the universe, that seems just like a scientific hypothesis that it all hangs together. It's just one interacted whole. I, how does that lead to... Really, I mean, the sacredness, that seems, I don't get how the sacredness and the oneness are connected. So here's what I love about your question. Uh, on the one hand, we study the scientific world, and it's a vast domain of separate data and forces and organisms and the rest. Um, that's the level at which science works. And we look for underlying similarities and laws. But the philosophical mind comes to that scientific difference and asks, is there any level at which they are connected. So Aristotle's question, you know, what is that which is the essence of things? What is the ontos or the being that underlies it? That's kind of what the philosopher does when the day in the science lab is over. And pantheism is the claim that underlying empirical appearances is something that we might call a ground of being or a deeper unity. We call it monism in philosophical texts. So, Philip, let, let me start with a little uh, confession here. I've been through a number of different religious positions in, in my life, uh, including pantheism. But in my pantheistic days, I had a, a, a view of the universe that really doesn't hold up uh, with today's science. I mean, uh, I, I, I kind of thought of, of, you know, there might be a lot of connections that, that we were only dimly aware of uh, that, that maybe could produce something, something vaguely akin to consciousness uh, 
uh, in the universe as a whole. But but really, science tells us that the universe, I mean, it's not even clear it means to talk about the universe as a thing. Maybe it's just reality with, with no boundaries of the sort that a thing needs. But at any rate, it's just mostly nothing. You know, black stuff, antimatter, interspersed with little clumps of barely more than nothing, stretching endlessly, maybe involving distant galaxies that we'll never know about. I mean, the Earth, now that seems like something we should really be thankful for and maybe pay some attention to, but the universe as a whole, it just seems like science tells us it's a big, meaningless unfathomable glob of emptiness with a few things of interest like us. Is that really what we want to worship? Think of, yeah, I don't know about worshiping the universe, so uh, Rabbit and I may not be on the same page on this one. (laughs) (laughs) But John, what I like about the question is, you know, when you study physics, you recognize this striving to formulate the deepest unity that underlies, underlies appearances. When Newton formulated the inverse square law of gravity, it said that all motions in the universe re- uh, obey the same uh, force and, and manifest it. Um, the seeking to take the four fundamental forces of physics today and think them as a unity, uh, the, the drive of physicists to formulate a TOE, a theory of everything, there is something about that drive toward oneness that the philosopher understands. Maybe we've been led astray by um, the theism of the religious traditions, and we need a a hard-minded philosophical quest to formulate that oneness. But uh, look, okay, the oneness is one thing, and that's a complicated question. But I want to go back a second to the sacredness of the universe. Right, because the reason that the monotheist, the who believes in the transcendent, uh, uh, the transcendent personal God, thinks things are sacred, is because they issue from this source that has kind of infinite perfection or something like that, and that infinite source commands you. But if you're a pantheist and the universe is just there with no ground outside itself, what makes it sacred as opposed to just well, just there? Where does the concept of a sacred get a hold in pantheism? Yeah. So the pantheist says, you know, that traditional doctrine of creation, it sounded like some dude sitting there with nothing to do on a Saturday afternoon. And he said, well, I'm going to create this universe. Think of David Hume's critique of classical theism in the, in the dialogues. Uh, pantheism says, no, don't think of it at that simplistic human model. Let's take all that exists and then let's ask or postulate if there's some a deeper dimension that they share in common. Does the value of the universe, for example, its beauty, the, that thing that causes awe and reverence within us, do we have to locate that outside in some sort of anthropomorphic God? Why not find that as the principle that permeates all things in the universe? And that's More philosophically the, uh, satisfying, isn't it? Uh, uh, well, that's, that's an interesting question. Let's put that to some of our listeners. Dorothy from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talks, Dorothy. Thank you. Um, two points. One, um, the uh, uh, my experience with pantheism. I'm a, basically a long-time neo-pagan. Uh, the um, traditional religions, at least in you know monotheistic religions, and certain elements of Western philosophy tend to separate humanity from the rest of the universe, whereas um, the pantheist pantheistic approach integrates humanity. If we, we are part of the universe, we are not separate from it. 
And so it ties in with what you're talking about with the quest for oneness, that we are already one with the universe. We are made from star stuff, if you like. Uh, when you look at this you know, scientific uh, explanations as to why, how and life and water got here from extraterrestrial you know, meteorites and so forth. Secondly, um, in the neo-pagan community, or at least most of it, the word warlock is not meant it's not used to mean a male witch. It is considered an insult. A male witch is either a witch or a wizard. Oh, thanks, Dorothy. It's good to be educated on that point, and my apologies to all the wizards and male witches uh, <laughs> in, in the world. Dorothy raised a number of good points, but, but in particular, Philip, I'd like you to say a little bit about humanism versus pantheism, because I think from the point of view of traditional Christianity, these are maybe just part of the same whole non-Christian ball of wax, but they're really quite different, right? Yeah. The religious practices we might associate with this philosophical view are varied, and maybe we can talk about those later. But, you know, Dorothy's comment makes me think there's an interesting part of pantheism. Imagine that we took it as an inferential conclusion from contemporary science. Physics speaks of core physical forces that unify all things. What does evolution teach? that humans are not ontologically separate, that there are only quantitative differences, say in brain complexity, between ourselves and other animals, that all living cells are traced back to the first uh, prokaryotic cell. So pantheism might be a more accurate inference from evolution today uh, than traditional theism. But, but, but Philip, but Philip, okay, so you're saying one of the benefits of pantheism is it's not at odds with science. I mean, if if the if God is the great unifying one and the way to science is the way to study the great unified one, then science is studying God and there's no big conflict. I get that. But what does <laughs> pantheism add to the deliverances of science? I mean, okay, science teaches us something about humans, their place in the universe, all that sort of stuff, how the universe is built, where it came from, sort of, right? But what does pantheism add to that? I know what Christianity adds to that, right? The great created thing and the purpose that pervades all being is given by this outside being who created it for a reason. What does pantheism, though, add to science? It reminds me of Kant's claim in the third critique of a teleology without a telos. In other words, uh, some sort of purposiveness is recognized and acknowledged in the world without some ultimate tell us, like, you know, the final judgment or something. Here's another argument you could make. We have the intuition that there's inherent value in persons, uh, in life, in the universe. Uh, philosophers call this axiology. Often, ax uh, values are based in some external God. But what if we took the philosophical position, as many have done, that those values are... Um, a, a part of being itself. Well, pantheism is a way of expressing that. Nicholas Rescher argued this in a recent book, for example. So and finally, there's the pragmatic argument that with pantheism, people will be more inspired to act in an environmental way toward the planet. So, so Philip, the, the last thing impinges on, a, uh, on something I was going to ask. That is, one, one way to get content into a set of views, a set of religious views, is to see, see what the... the ethical implications are. It's pretty clear, or relatively clear, with traditional Christian theism. You're supposed to obey God, and so forth and so on. With pantheism, it's not so clear. I mean, is it, is it even... It, uh, it, for, for example, humanists think humans are very valuable, but it's not clear to me why pantheists should think humans are particularly valuable. They're, after all, destroying a great deal of the ecology on Earth. But then you might ask, 
Well, what's so great about the ecology on Earth? I mean, I mean, the universe is a huge place. It's apparently got galaxies upon galaxies, many of which are spawning solar-like systems that uh, probably have Earths. What's so important about ours? Matter of fact, what's so important about consciousness? I mean, doesn't kind of the worship of everything undermine what's necessarily for ethics, namely the particular valuing of some things? What if I said that the planet or the ecosystem or the life forms that you and I can take care of are those on this planet? It, you know, we don't own or and can't influence the ecosystems of some ancient planet, but the ones here we can make a difference on. We need a philosophical view that makes sense of that, that uh, in the, the demise of classical theism, which has lost its hold for many people. How can we formulate this obligation that I have toward you, toward the entire ecosystem I'm a part of? This is a powerful way to do it. Jack from Berkeley's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Jack. Hi, Ken. Uh, gentlemen, I just want to say I enjoy your program very much and listen often. Uh, following what we've been talking about, I really think what we're seeing here in uh, pantheism is the reconciliation of a false dilemma. Uh, the, I, as I see it, the thing that makes us human is this religious impulse from religio, wanting to link back, link human consciousness to the source of un, uh, consciousness, to understand our position in, in the universe. And, of course, those, uh, as you fellows well know, was united at one point, and then it became necessary to split science from religion so that science could progress and escape dogma. But in doing so, we have this completely disenchanted sort of the universe that, uh, uh, the, that you guys have been uh, mentioning, which is disenchanted, sort of purposeless, uh, random chance creating, etc. But that's the mistake. If uh, we imagine creation at every level, when we look around, there's been a tremendous amount of creation at every level, and, the, and we hold the position that it's not just random chance, that uh, we, we have this orientation to a larger whole. And now even in quantum physics, when we look into it, that what appears to be empty space is in fact the quantum void out of which all the subatomic particles that sort of boil up into existence. So it's, it's, it's much more interesting than a sort of vast, empty, cold, dark, uh, senseless space within which the human uh, drama is so, taking place. Jack, f fascinating stuff. Thanks for the call. So Jack is saying that pantheism returns us to the undivided wisdom of earlier eras. Do you, you agree with that, uh, Philip? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, we think of this as it's basic in, the, in some of the Eastern traditions that, that are beginning to influence Western philosophers and, and thinkers. You know, the Buddhists call it pratitya samutpada, or codependent arising. All things arise in a sort of causal relation to each other. Uh, Spinoza talked about the same thing. We're all modes of one eternal, he called it deus natura, God or nature. I don't call it, care what you call it. There's some connected whole. We exist as modes or expressions of that one whole, and that does influence how we think. Okay, but I, I don't get the theism part. I get that. We're one connected whole. We're all part of the connected. Everything is in dynamic interaction. Everything depends on everything else. Uh, okay, and and be awestruck by that. I, I get that. I'm a code scientific guy, but I don't see where that makes for a religion. But you know what? You can tell me why I'm wrong about that after a break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about pantheism with Philip Clayton, co-author of The Predicament of Belief, Science, Philosophy, and Faith. Are there any particular rituals or practices that belong exclusively to pantheism? Tree-hugging, maybe? Is there a church of pantheism? Or is it just not the kind of religion that gets practiced like that at all? Pantheism and Religious Practice, when Philosophy Talk continues. I love you. 
loving the earth as you might love God enough to make you a pantheist? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence, of course. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Philip Clayton from the Claremont School of Theology. So, Philip, I want to take you back to where we were just before the break. Okay, I get. The, the, the universe is one great whole. It's an awe-inspiring whole. Believe that. I, 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 an atheist could believe that. I still don't see what pantheism adds to scientific truth plus wonderment at the the vast complexity of the universe. What does it add? Yeah, so that's exactly what we needed to do in this final segment of the show. We've kind of pushed the, the side where pantheism connects with science, doesn't impinge on the human pursuit of empirical knowledge, offers a sort of value overlay over the universe. That's the one margin or edge, pushing as close to Richard Dawkins as you can get without losing the pantheist side. But now push toward the other side. How close might it be to traditional theism. Let's think of that traditional Quaker belief that there is that of God in each one, that, that the God or the divine is manifested in each one. Take the, the pantheistic mystical Jewish text called Kabbalah, which says that the spark of the divine was shattered and sent out throughout the world, and that uh, in, in Hasidism one finds that spark in the other, uh, Rosenzweig and others write about this. Or finally take the great Hindu traditions uh, of, say, Shankara, where uh, they, they call it Nirguna Brahman, the Brahman which has the attributes of Satchichananda, being consciousness and bliss. It's a theistic position just in a much broader and I'd say more interesting sense of theism than you get in your local uh, Methodist church. Well, that's all very nice. But, you know, I go back to something you were saying towards the end of the last part of the show that I really agreed with, which is what we really know about the universe that ought to be something we care about is the Earth. Everything we are, everything that's good about life, everything that's good about human life, everything that's good about other kinds of life, everything about our past, everything about our future is wrapped up in this one rock, the Earth, not the universe as a whole, not even the galaxy as a whole. And, and, and so when you were talking that way, you were getting close to my own view, which is we ought to worship the Earth. I have an essay by that uh, name, which I will throw up on the website. But it seems to me that that message gets diluted when we diluted when when we when we talk about pantheism and worshiping the universe as a whole, we don't know beans about the universe as a whole, or at least what we know about it doesn't suggest it's a reasonable object of worship. It's it's something that we might call a big accident if if the notion of an accident made any sense for the universe as a whole. What we do know is that the Earth is important, and that if if we care about it, we might actually make it better for the things, at providing the things we care about. So is is. Do you really want to call this pantheism? Why not call it earthyism? Yeah, and you know the word pantheism was uh, a label created by our opponents to say, oh, you guys are idiots because you say that all is God and God is all. Clearly God is not, you know, the garbage can or uh, an a evil person like Hitler, therefore your position is absurd. We prefer uh, terms like monism or dialectical monism or something. My, I use the term panentheism in philosophical circles. But, John, your comment makes me think of a panentheist primer. <laughs> so, you start, so you start with recognizing something divine in your partner, your friends, your family, those closest to you. Then you recognize that that's in the human image. So now you become sort of a 
a humanist, and then you begin to recognize not just humans, but other life forms are part of the same great chain of being. Then you recognize the ecosystem or the life system as a whole on the planet shares in the same way. And then as you study physics, you recognize it's a part of the same chemistry and physics that pervades the universe. But I'll let you start with your wife if you want. Okay, so <laughs> we've got a caller in the line. Keith, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Keith from San Francisco. What's your Hello. comment or question? My question is, what would you call someone who is... Uh, not a believer in a personal God, but would not be a monist or uh, pantheist. Um, most uh, non-Orthodox uh, Jews, conservatives, and Reformed Jews, for example, don't believe in a personal God, but they do believe in a God. What would you call that type of belief? Good question. Uh, Philip, you're the expert in the world's religions. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, great question. Uh, Debates in philosophy since in the 20th century and before are so much broader in what the term theism means that it's a pity that we continue to be captured by Christian creeds when we approach these questions. Let's take, for example, so I'm going to use theism now in the broader sense that the caller is asking. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead, writing in the early 20th century, speaks of a, of a God which is the, a primordial nature, uh, like Platonic forms, and then a consequent nature, which is the interaction of every moment of experience at every time. And this God takes into its experience all the experiences of all finite agents. Well, that's theism in this broader sense. It's not pantheism, uh, but it's a but it's not classical theism. Uh, you know, I in preparing for this show, I read a whole bunch of stuff, and one of these things reports on Americans true religious beliefs. I mean, you know, people, a lot of people call themselves Christians, but if you push them about what they think about God, most Americans actually turn out to be, I mean, at least a plurality of believing Americans turn out to be some kind of pantheist. And if you look at the totality of the world's religions, it seems to me there's probably more people who are some closer to pantheism than traditional Christian theism. So in some sense, pantheism is the world's majority religion. Would you agree with that or not? I, th I think that's really an interesting claim. We published a book a few years ago called In Whom We Live and Move and Have Our Being. And the open, opening essay argued exactly that. There's been evolution away from old-style classical theism. The label I would use to be exact is the word panentheism. All things are located within the divine, but God is in some way more than that whole. Yeah, I and I find huge evidence that's that's widespread. One today. quick question. One quick question. Okay, look, you, you when a religion tells you what to do, what to be, it doesn't doesn't just give you a set of metaphysical doctrines. It tells you how to how to orient yourselves to the world, to others. You sort of talked about the ethics of it, but but is there? I mean, is there anything that follows from the very idea of pantheism to what kind of religious practices you should be? I mean, there aren't really many sacred pa pantheistic texts, are there? that don't prescribe these rituals, that rituals, in order to do what? I mean, what's pantheistic practice like, and what's it based on? <laughs> you know that philosophers tend to be more independent. Many of us just aren't joiners, so you're not going to see us at you know, a local temple or synagogue or church. But 
Over the centuries, back to the Hindu Vedas, there have been many different cultural expressions of this belief. Let me pull back from the cultural differences running from the ancient Vedas to Rabbit's Coven that we heard earlier and just talk about some general practices that would be spiritual practices. One recognizes a divine or a sacred in other persons. Uh, it, that can lead for us as a foundation for human rights. One recognizes that animals also have this. That leads a foundational for us as a way of defending uh, animal rights. One recognizes a sacredness in the ecosystems that surround us. And so we superimpose upon biological results a value or a, even a religious um, framework. Do you and believe, are you on. one of those people, so there are, you, there are people who believe that unless you believe in a personal commanding God, you can't get ethics off the ground. Right? I, I think that's false, but there's the divine command theory of ethics. Do you believe that yeah. if you didn't believe if you were just a thoroughgoing atheist, right, and you didn't believe that there was any divinity to the totality, but it was just there, it was just this accidental thing, as John says, are you one of those who believes you couldn't get morality going on a totally the theistic, naturalistic, uh, materialist uh, basis? No, I'm not. But it's interesting to take some new atheist writings, and when you push them, you, you wonder, are they verging on something like the pantheism we've talked about? Take Sam Harris's brilliant 2010 book, The Moral Landscape. He tries to derive the values from science alone, and yet on the margins, there's a sense of value that he grants. Uh, you can find it in... in uh, uh, science and Religion book by Bertrand Russell, 1917, where a sort of mystical oneness comes out in the final pages. So I'd suggest that a lot more, quote, atheist scientists hold a view similar to the one I've been defending on the show. Well, I think that's very interesting and uh, maybe leads us back to, to closing with uh, approximately where we started with William James. He distinguished between healthy-minded and, I don't know, sick-minded or whatever it were, theists, and I think we can say the same about atheists. Some of them are just kind of discouraged and, and and says, say, you know, to hell with it. Others, like Dan Dennett, seem really frothy and perky about this whole idea of, of a world without God. And I do agree with you, I think, that that verges on something more like pantheism than straightforward atheism. So I'll close by saying, you know, there was a day when materialism really seemed like the scientifically and philosophically best defended view, but it's kind of hard to be a materialist nowadays, given what we know about ecosystems and life and given what we know about the nature of quantum physics. So if materialism is off the table, we want to begin with naturalism and then recognize a universe of value or at least a planet of value that, sur that surrounds us. Don't we need something very much like the position we've been discussing? Philip, on that all-encompassing uh, conclusion there, <laughs> I'm going to thank you for joining us. It's been an all-encompassing conversation. <laughs> Our guest has been Philip Clayton. He's dean of the Claremont School of Theology and provost of Claremont Lincoln University. He's co-author of The Predicament of Belief, Science, Philosophy, and Faith. And there have been lots of calls here that we couldn't get to, but this conversation continues, and you can still participate on our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is Cogito Ergo Blogo, I think, therefore I blog. And you can also follow us on Twitter and find out more by visiting our very, very active Facebook page. And you can sign up to get the free weekly podcast of Philosophy Talk. You do that on our website, philosophytalk.org. Now let's use philosophical thinking to help a listener work through a real-life problem. That's what we call a conundrum. And we've got a caller on the line now. Sherry, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you. Sherry, tell us where you're from and a little bit about yourself. 
Um, I am a philosophy professor at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma. Okay, so Sherry, tell us your conundrum. Well, my conundrum has to do with the hiring of felons. I have a friend who um, got out of prison several months ago and tried really hard to get a job, and he would drop off his resume and he would get called back for interviews quite frequently, but as soon as it came time for him to disclose his criminal conviction, immediately the matter would drop. He wouldn't have any further contact with the employer. So my conundrum has two parts. First of all, is it just for employers to have a blanket prohibition on hiring felons? And second, in a situation where they do, is it morally acceptable for a felon to lie and to claim to have a clean record to secure legitimate employment? Well, let me start with the second question. I think it's okay for the felon to lie if he realizes that admitting that he has a felony will mean he doesn't get the job. It's, it's situational. Let me give you an analogy. Suppose I have a tattoo someplace that's not immediately visible unless I disrobe to an extreme extent. And I realize the employer has a ban on tattoos. And I think that may be pretty reasonable for his purposes. He, he, but, but what he has in mind is tattoos that are visible on arms and necks and might put off his, his clientele who are maybe, I don't know, dainty ladies of an elder age or something. But my tattoo's irrelevant. It's on my butt. They're not going to see it. <laughs> so I don't see I don't see anything wrong in lying in that situation. So similarly, if a felon has a blemish on his record, but he's really convinced that his felonious days are over, I mean, if you need a job, you need a job. That's yeah. my view. Yeah, well, let's take the first part of that question. So our society has this complicated view about felons. Okay. And their rights and privileges and immunities and all that stuff. Okay, but but now let's ask about the employer. Right. One of the reasons, if I were an employer, one of the reasons I might have a blanket prohibition on hiring felons is because, well, I look around and I see the recidivism rate in this society, which is tremendous. I mean, you have, one of the things our prisons are for is crime school. So you go in there and instead of getting rehabilitated, instead of getting employable skills, you get educated into how to be a, a better crook. So people come out and they go back in, then they come out and they go back in. So if I'm the employer, it seems to me it's reasonable of me to not want to have to deal with this. Now, there might be an ex-felon who, you know, has gone straight and is going to be a good guy or a good gal and is going to do the right thing. But how do I know that? I mean, I'm kind of making decisions under uncertainty. Well, I think that as a society, we need to do a better job of helping to manage the risk. Um, I also do think, though, that it's reasonable to ask employers to consider moral considerations and not just economic considerations when they think about their hiring policies. Um, when you discriminate against people in employment and you discriminate against them in housing and in myriad other ways, it's eventually becomes inevitable that in one way or another, they're going to have to do something to get money and to survive, and crime is often part of that. Well, there's a bit of a paradox there, too. Now, some employers and some landlords who don't want to rent to felons or even people with more than two misdemeanors uh, have the ability to check that, but lots of them don't. Now, there's two kinds of felons, uh, those that got uh, a felony conviction because they're dishonest, bad people. Well, they're going to lie to you. And then there's the felons that uh, didn't do much of anything wrong, know they didn't do much of anything wrong, and know that it's irrelevant. They're going to lie to you. And then there's the super honest, super innocent, absolutely driven by duty, 
ex-felons. They're the only ones that'll tell you the truth, and they're the very ones <laughs> you would want to you'll, you'll exclude with <laughs> right. its policy. So it's, right. a, it's not a very clear policy. But go back to John's situation of the ex-con lying when he believes it's irrelevant and he needs, even if he believes it's relevant and he needs the job and he does, his alternatives are like, go back to prison or get a job and lie. Uh, only Kant and a few other people think there's an absolute prohibition against lying. I don't think there's an absolute prohibition against lying, especially when you're faced with a morally imperfect situation and you, it's not your duty to, you know, do the absolute morally perfect thing in a morally imperfect situation. Same thing for the employer, though. I don't know that it's his duty or her duty to do the morally best thing in a morally imperfect situation. They're both faced with kind of moral imperfection. Well, I can certainly sympathize with such an employer because I, I don't want to have to question this guy and find out if his felony is really relevant and then make a decision that might be wrong. But still, that's probably my duty. I have a good to offer we're prohibited from taking certain things into account, not that people don't like race and gender and age, but I think you have a, a responsibility to try, particularly since the government has failed in its responsibility to make the term felon mean much of anything. I mean, felons can be people that smoked a little dope at the wrong time. Yeah, so the bottom line is, if you're a courageous employer, do the right thing. And if you're a felon who knows that you're going to do the right thing, don't be afraid to lie. How's that for a solution, uh, Sherry? Well, let's also say if you're in government, you should fight for um, policies that help to reintegrate felons into society, too. Let's add that on. Okay, there you go. So there I we think go. we're all in agreement there. Conundrum solved. Thanks, Sherry, for sharing your conundrum with us. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. If you have a philosophical problem or quandary that's affecting your work or your play or keeping you awake at nights, John and I would be happy to lend an ear and maybe give you some sound advice. Go to the Philosophy Talk website and poke the conundrums button with your mouse or just send an email to conundrums at philosophytalk.org. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University Copyright 2012. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. The director of research is Laura McGuire. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Jimmy Tobin, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation. And from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.